Uh, we are at the tail end. This is the final week of our series called The Good Life. And so what we've been doing for the last three weeks and now closing out today is we've been looking at uh, competing gospels. And the idea that our culture here in America, it has its own version of the gospel. It would present to us an idea of what the good life is. And so as faithful followers of Jesus, we want to take that and we want to hold that in line with Scripture. And say, what does the gospel of Jesus declare that in his kingdom, the good life is really all about? Because there are many ways that we live in in an amazing country. We're blessed to be where we are. We never want to lose sight of that, but we also want to hold in tension the fact that this kingdom is not our true home. That we are, as followers of Jesus, we're citizens of heaven, and so we live in light of what the gospel of Jesus would proclaim. And so we've been looking over the last couple weeks at competing ideas. Week one, we looked at the idea that in Jesus' kingdom, the good life is a life of generosity— Then we looked at the idea that in his kingdom, the good life is a life of service. Last week, Brett preached that in Jesus' kingdom, the good life is a life of humility. And now this week, we examine what it means that in Jesus' kingdom, the good life is a life of contentment. And so with that, pull out scripture if you have it. If you don't, you can borrow the Bibles from the pews ahead of you. And let's look at Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. I'll read this aloud for us as you follow along. Then we'll spend another moment in prayer and we'll continue in God's word. Philippians 4 verse 10 says this. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Lord Jesus, again, we just come before you in your word. And Lord, I pray that as a community, but also as individual followers of you, that we would come more faithfully in line with your teachings, that we would look at what it means to live in the good life of your kingdom, that we would be people who at our core are people of contentment. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would learn that we'd be challenged to find our contentment and our sufficiency in you And that that would be a game changer for how we live our lives. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And we come before you now in your name we pray. Amen. So this last idea of the gospel, the American gospel, that we look at this morning, is that the American gospel is and always has been a gospel of more. So at its core, it articulates and it advocates that more is never enough. And that has really, for the longest time in our country, been embedded in the DNA of what it means to be an American. And that has produced some good fruit as a people, and yet it has also produced some fruit in us that runs contrary to what our Lord and Savior would call us as His people to live. Because if we live with the mindset that more is never enough— 
then that will saturate its way into our discipleship, into our faith, and also into the way that we relate to Jesus. That more is never enough. And so in the American gospel, it will look like this. If you have a car, get a nicer one. If you have a home, get a bigger one. If you have an apartment, why don't you have a home? Get a home. If you have clothes, get newer ones. If you have savings, get more. If you have friends, you need more. More is never enough. And so as people, we end up, and we very well, even knowing Jesus, can end up living our lives perpetually chasing more and never finding satisfaction, never finding true contentment. And so it's in the midst of all that pollution that the gospel of Jesus is just a breath of fresh air. And it would speak to us that you can know true, real, soul-satisfying contentment, regardless of whether you have everything or whether you have nothing. And the gospel would speak to us that that is only possible because of the sufficiency that we have in him. And so that runs and it bumps up against the American gospel of more. And so the problem is that if we as followers of Jesus don't learn to see the air we breathe, we can spend a lifetime following him, being a part of a faithful community, and yet not understanding why we never understand what it feels like to be content. To feel like more is never enough and we keep chasing it. And so that's my prayer is that we would embrace a worldview, a worldview this morning. That lives in light of the reality that in Jesus we have sufficiency and contentment regardless of our circumstances. And so when we look at the text, when we look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, there's a reason that we're here this morning when we talk about the idea of contentment. And in order to fully understand what it is that Paul's saying, you have to understand his worldview, right? He did not have the American gospel. But in his culture, there was a philosophical worldview that was... Uh, extremely prevalent. And so it was this philosophical worldview called Stoicism. And one of the things that, uh, there's a lot of things to Stoicism, but one of the things that was important in Stoic philosophy is self-sufficiency. And so for the Stoics, for kind of the gospel of Paul's age, self-sufficiency was one of the highest virtues. And the reason that self-sufficiency was so important is that it would enable a person, in their worldview, it would enable a person to live content outside of their need or outside of their abundance. Now, as Christians, we can validate that. That is a good thing, to, to have contentment apart from my needs and my abundance, that's in line with the gospel. But the problem with the Stoic school of thought is that the source for finding that contentment was not in Jesus. It was in you. And so the, the whole goal of their line of thought and their way of life was this. There's something in me uh, and I need to discover it. Be that knowledge, experience. There's got to be something that I can discover in and through myself that will lead me to a place of self-sufficiency. And then once I'm self-sufficient, it won't matter if I have a little or if I have a lot. 
And so as Christians, we look at that and we say, okay, you got, you're like halfway there. I can agree with you that to be content, to, to experience contentment regardless of what I have or what I don't have is a good thing. But the gospel of Jesus would point me in a different direction that I am never going to find that in myself. And you are never going to find that in yourself. But the gospel of Jesus would point us to the fact that only in him will we find the real contentment that is above and detract or above and separate from my needs and my wants. And so my prayer this morning is that above all else, our soul would become convinced that contentment can only be found in Jesus. And that sounds like such a simple statement. It's very easy to say, and yet you and I have grown up in a culture that has trained us and conditioned us to think and to believe the exact opposite. Because you grew up in the more is never enough culture. And so my prayer is that our hearts would be convinced of that. Now, so that was Paul's background, the stoic side of things. The American one is similar but different. So the American gospel would say self-sufficiency is good. That's like a core virtue of being American. Is that you are an island. That you can be sufficient. But it's not something that you discover in yourself. But the American gospel would say this. In order to be sufficient, self-sufficient, you need to have abundance. Because when you have abundance, you don't need anything else. Because your abundance, be it financial abundance, relational abundance, emotional health abundance, that abundance will provide for you self-sufficiency. So the American gospel would also idealize self-sufficiency, but it will tell you the more you get, the closer you're going to be to actually becoming self-sufficient. And so we look at the gospel of Jesus. Both of those ideologies are close and yet oh so far. And then Jesus comes in and gives us a better way to live as his people. And so what what causes or necessitates Paul to write this letter? So if you look at The verses before verse 10 in chapter 4. So Paul is writing to this church. These are his friends. He has good relationship with them. He's lived with them. He helped start the church in Philippi. And so he has friendship with these people. Now, these folks have been supporters, financial supporters of his ministry. So they have previously sent him financial support. And yet there's been a season, for whatever reason, where they haven't been able to get that support to him. And now at last it's arrived once again. And Paul writes this letter and he tells them, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Hey, you, you sent this gift and I appreciate it. Now what he's trying to tell them is this, we'll go back to stoicism. So in the philosophical worldview of stoicism, there are three levels of friendship. The highest level is not very creatively called the good. And that would be what you and I would think of as like maybe a healthy friendship where you genuinely love each other. You look out for the needs of one another and you care for one another. Right? We would just call that a good, healthy friendship nowadays, but that was the highest level for the Stoics. Now the lowest level, the third level of friendship for them is purely utilitarian, which is where you are my friend because you are useful to me. Right? And nowadays, people call that toxic relationships. Right? But the Stoics would 
try and butter that up as a friendship. You're my friend, but you're my friend who's only useful to me. And so Paul is writing this saying, hey, thanks for the gift that you gave me. But lest you think that our friendship is just one of of usefulness, I want you to know something about the gift you gave me. And that's why he goes on in verses 11 through 13 to expand and digress a little bit on this theology. And so he says, I appreciate the gift. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I rejoice not because of money, right? Money is great, but that's not why he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing because they have friendship. And then he says, here, let me prove to you why our friendship is more than just this gift. And here's why. And he goes on to say, it's because I've always been content. I I was content before your gift got to me. And I'm no more content now that it's here. So I don't want you to think that I'm thankful to God for your friendship because you sent me a birthday check. I want you to know that I love you regardless of the money. Why? Why is that possible? Because I've always been content in need and in abundance. So the gift makes no difference. And that's why he goes on to this little bit of theology. So let's pick it up in verse 11. So the first half, Paul says this. I'm not saying this, i.e. I'm not saying that I rejoiced. I'm not saying this because I am in need. Now here's the irony. If ever there was a guy in need, it was Paul, right? Look back at Philippians 1. Verse 20 through 22. I think Paul and you and Paul and I have a very different definition of need. Listen to what his, what he doesn't see as need. He says, I eagerly expect and hope I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Why? Well, because he's in prison right now uh, facing a death sentence. I would characterize that as being in need. Just me personally. I don't know about you. He says in verse 21, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, Paul and I find ourselves on different pages here. I'm just being honest. Verse 22, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Right? Like, are you delusional, dude? What are you going to choose? It's not really a buffet. Like you're in prison. You're facing death or the unknown. And so even in the midst of that situation, he's like, hey, don't worry about it, you guys. I'm all good. I'm not in need. And I look at that and I think, I don't think Paul is just being facetious. I don't think he's trying to be holier than thou or super spiritual. He genuinely sees the darkness of his situation as not affecting the level of his contentment. And then I look at that and I look at my life and I'm just going to be real with you. Paul and I are not on the same level of discipleship right now because the way that I define need is vastly different than the way Paul describes need. If being in jail facing death isn't a need, then I will, I, I, I've never been in need to be honest, if that's not the case. And yet you and I have grown up in a culture that has given us a different definition of need. Our culture has taught you and me that that our wants are actually needs. Think about that. Most of the things that you and I would say I need right now are actually wants that have been twisted 
to become needs. And that's the air we breathe. That's the pollution we breathe. How many of you have ever seen or heard of the, the AMC show Mad Men? Right? No, oh, okay. Yeah, you're all better than me. I get it. I don't watch cable television either. Right? So Mad Men is a show about uh, the 1960s in the advertising subculture. And the show follows this group of people who work at an ad agency. And every show or every episode, they have kind of these meetings. And on the table is some product. A product that they have to find a way to convince the American people they need to have. Even though it's not something that they probably need. And so you have these roundtable conversations. And really all this is is a fascinating look into how so many of the things you and I have become convinced our needs are actually wants disguised as needs. And so we don't, uh, marketing has changed over the years. And now it's, if you go online, it's whether you acknowledge it or not, there are these invisible little creatures called algorithms and they will take anything you search, anything you buy and Google will betray you. And it will send that information out to every advertiser out there. And all of a sudden, on all your social media, you will start to see the very thing you kind of Googled once. Of like, oh, maybe I, I'm interested in looking for this. Like if you put in a certain car that you want, I guarantee you every dealership in Southern California has your cookies. And they're blasting your social media with pictures of what you looked for. And so if you go on social media, you will over and over and over again be inundated with targeted marketing to you. What have you searched for before? And then they'll bring it right to your face. And pretty soon, as you keep scrolling, the first couple times you might look by and be like, oh no, I was just thinking that might be nice. And all of a sudden, after seeing it over and over and over again, you start to think, maybe I do need this. Right? For whatever reason, on my Instagram right now, I don't know what I've been Googling, but it's okay. It's good. Uh, it's body armor. I don't know why, but Instagram is telling me that I need body armor right now. I don't know if it knows something that I don't know, but I'm looking at this, right? I wore body armor overseas. I never got shot, and I live in suburban Orange County, and I just keep seeing pictures of body armor over and over again. And, and at first, I'm like... This is stupid. Why do I need body armor? And then after like a couple months of seeing this stuff, I'm like, you're right. What if the government does? What if they do? What if they come for me and my family? So maybe I do need body armor. You're right. And so you start to think this way. And why? Because over and over and over again, you've been targeted to see something that at first was a stupid want. And yet now at the end, you're thinking, man, this makes sense. This really makes sense. So I'm going to go ahead and order it. And luckily, because of Prime, it's going to be in two days. So I'm going to wear it next week. Right? And so also this week, I went to uh, the Sprint store, right? Which is just a terrible place to be for many reasons. But Taylor and I went in there. And I've had my phone forever. And so they remind you and they let you know, hey, you can upgrade. Come on in. Like, they got me. And I went in there. And I brought my antiquated iPhone. It's not that old. And I brought it in there, and you're sitting there, and it took far too long. And they say, hey, by the way, you actually save money if you get a new phone. I'm like, I don't know. You're like a drug dealer, but I believe you. So I'm going to go ahead and just upgrade anyway. And so I'm waiting for them to switch over the phone and do all that stuff. 
All right, I'm sitting there, and you're a captive audience. And so God bless this sprint salesman. He's got me sitting there for like two hours. It was punishment. And so he tries to sell me every product that Sprint has on their shelf. It was insane. And so I'm just sitting there like, no, I don't need that. No, I don't need that. And then all of a sudden, after a couple hours of listening to sales pitches, he brings this thing out, and he's like, hey, do you know that we have these trackers? No, tell me about the trackers, bro. And so he brings out the trackers and he's like, he's like, do you, do you have children? Yeah, I, I have children. Well, you know that like these things are so small, you could like even put them on your kids and then that way like your kids would be safe. You'd know where they are. And you're like, are my kids not safe? Should I be bugging my children? And I kid you not, I ordered them. And then luckily he took so long to switch the phone over. I came to my senses and I, and I was like, no, bro, take those off. Like, I don't know what I'm thinking. Like, I don't know how, and I'm sitting thinking like, man, if I don't track my kids, I've seen the movie taken. I know how this goes. Somebody's going to take my kids. They're going to wind up in Eastern Europe. And so I need these sprint trackers for five bucks a month. It's no big deal. I'll pay the price. And then I was like, how did parents keep their children alive without GPS trackers? Because like, I, I hear people have done this. And so after a while, I'm like, dude, no, like, take that off. I don't need that stuff. And so he almost had me. But I'm sitting there. I had no intention of bugging my children before I went into that store. And this salesman had me sold on GPS trackers for all my kids. Right? And so Taylor is not going to let me go out of the house and shop alone now. And I'm looking at that. Why? He was wisely able, or not wisely, very convincingly able to make me think that I needed something I didn't actually need. And so you and I breathe that in all the time in our culture, that what you might think is nonsense and not a need, it's a want at best, all of a sudden becomes something that I convince myself. I can't do without this. In fact, this is a need. And I'm not going to be okay. And I'm not going to be content until I have this, until I have my body armor and my children are bugged. I cannot know peace. And so that's what the American gospel convinces me. And all that does is when my heart can't be content, my heart will never be grateful. I can't be grateful for all that Jesus is doing in me if I'm constantly thinking about the wants that I'm telling myself are needs. And so here's how this plays out. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Right, so we take that and we compare our culture's view of need with what Paul presents. And here's where it just becomes clearly evident that Paul and I are in different pages yet again. First Timothy 6, in verse 6, he says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And here's where Paul loses me. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Really? I'm not there. I'm not there. And you know how I know I'm not there? Because as soon as what I have gets threatened, I lose my contentment. And yet Paul is saying, no, no, we're good. Because I have a heavenly reality that I brought nothing in and I'm taking nothing out. So as long as I got some food and clothes right now, I'm good. And then as an American who follows Jesus, I look at that and I'm like, no, that can't be true. I don't want that to be true. 
because my culture has conditioned me to think otherwise. And so here's how this looks in our lives. And so this is where you do a little self-examination and you look at yourself and are there areas of our lives where you find yourself constantly changing? Maybe for you, it's clothing. Maybe clothes don't last a month on your rack before all of a sudden you're swapping them out. Or maybe it's cars. Maybe you're always constantly upgrading to the next and best vehicle. Or maybe it's friendships. You're always looking for a new friendship, one that's going to meet a better need. And so when you and I find ourselves in cycles and seasons of life where we just keep swapping and changing things out, that's usually a sign that there is some restlessness going on on a soul deep level and there's a lack of contentment and we just keep swapping and switching and upgrading hoping that eventually the american gospel of more is enough will stick so as we look at ourselves and we ask why am i constantly changing why am i constantly trying to upgrade is it because i'm really actually seeking to find contentment And I can't find it. No matter how many times I swap and upgrade. And we continue on. Let's look at verse 11 in Philippians. Paul says this. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. The second half. For I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances. Right. And there's two things that stick out to me in that little expression right there. Is that his contentment isn't defined by his need or his abundance you catch that it's like i've learned to be content in any circumstance i've known poverty and i've known a full stomach i've been just as content in both of those seasons because my contentment is not dependent on how much of anything i have contentment is completely separated from my needs and my wants it exists outside of that And that won't make sense until it exists and rests in Jesus. Because if you never make it there, then you can't possibly see how you can be content without what you've convinced yourself is a need. It will never make sense. But then the second thing is this. Look what he says. For I have what? I have learned to be content. Catch that intentionality? I have learned to be content. Which insinuates what? I wasn't always content. I had to learn it. Your default mode, my default mode, not just because we're Americans, but because we're humans, our default mode because of the brokenness of sin is that we do not know how to be content. At the core of who we are in our nature, there's a something that's broken. And that broken piece of us because of sin will never allow us to be content until we learn to be content in Jesus. And I see that we took our kids to the pumpkin patch this year. It's a great tradition that we have. And of course, by pumpkin patch in Orange County, I mean we went to the parking lot of the Westminster Mall. And it was fantastic. Right? And so we go to the parking lot of the Westminster Mall. And we go with uh, other families in our connect group. Right? And we go, we did it last year, we did it this year, and the kids just have a good time. Right? And they don't know it's a parking lot. They don't care. Right? So we go there and we, and we go in. I don't know if you've been to these charlatans' houses before. They are the most 
overpriced piece of parking lot you will ever step foot in. And so you walk in there and you look at it and everything, there's bounce houses, there's carnival rides, there's like, I think, is there a petting zoo? No, no animal should be there. There is a petting zoo? Well, oh, that's sad. And so you go to the parking lot and you go in and then you go to order these tickets. And these tickets are absurd. How much it costs to do these things, right? Now, Taylor and I, were, because of our, you know, as many of you know through our story that we're walking through right now, because of bankruptcy and, uh, and medical debt, we're trying to get back onto a healthy financial footing as we go through all this. So part of that is we're revamping our budget. Right? And so uh, parking lot pumpkin patches somehow didn't make it into the budget for October. Right? They should have. And we get there, and I was like, okay, Tay, we're talking about, we're having the parent talk to the side as the kids are looking at, like, all the bounce houses and stuff. And we're like, okay, how much are we going to spend here? Like, we didn't budget necessarily for this ridiculous place. And so, okay, well, maybe we should just do a little bit. And then Taylor's like, no, let's just, you know, if you buy, each ticket's a dollar, but if you buy 41, it's only $40. And so, like, you know, it's just buy 40. And so, not her fault. And so we buy the tickets, and we're like, hey, we will, we will budget, we'll, out, we'll move some other money from something else that we would do, and we'll use it on these tickets, right? Because we want our kids to have a great parking lot pumpkin patch experience. And so I shell out the money for these, I shell out the, monies for the, the money for these tickets, and we go in, and... Five minutes on a Batman bounce house is six bucks. Like Vegas is cheaper than the Batman bounce house at the Westminster Mall, right? And so I'm shelling out these tickets. The kids have a great time. My soul is crying on the inside. And then we start to walk out. The kids, they had a great time with their friends from our connect group. And then we're walking out. And then on the way out are all of these pumpkins, which my kids think grow in the parking lot. And so we're walking out. And we had two days before done all of our pumpkin carving, right? We're good to go. And we're walking out. And both the boys, as they're walking out, they notice that we just like kind of casually move through the pumpkins. And they're like, aren't we going to get some of these pumpkins? I'm like, buddies, you don't understand. But that, that $20 pumpkin is not... That's not a thing, dude. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to pay it. And so all of a sudden, I see that contentment is learned, not inherited. And my boys just, after all the money I just spent on those stinking Batman bounce houses, my kids are walking through the pumpkins. And what goes from, like, happy, having fun, becomes this, like, breakdown in the parking lot as we get in the car without the overpriced parking lot pumpkin and they're walking in there and then i just like my soul which was already weeping on the inside because of the tickets like i i I lose my jesus and i'm just like (laughs) and so taylor and i we both are like are you kidding me like how can you not be happy we just did all this stuff and so we kind of had like this you know those rare moments as parents where you feel like a wwe tag team partner where you're like we're slapping each other in and like we're clotheslining them with guilt like how dare you i just spent money that we shouldn't have on the bounce houses and now all right baby you get them okay and then i tag her in and she gets in there and she's like people elbowing them with like those pumpkins we already carved pumpkins you don't need any more pumpkins you have pumpkins on the doorstep and so, man, we just like body slammed our children with emotional guilt about why they're not getting another pumpkin. It was like one of those parenting wins where your kids are like, like crying in shame and you're like, yeah. yeah. And then the next morning you're like, man, I don't know Jesus at all. Like I just, I just shamed my six-year-old for wanting a pumpkin. Like he doesn't understand economy. Like what am I supposed to do? 
And so I look at that and that, and that's how it tells me that contentment is learned. It's not natural. And so you and I, I can pick on my kids, and yet so often you and I are exactly the same way. Our natural disposition is to question why I didn't get the pumpkin instead of appreciating the Batman bounce house. I'm the same way with God. He lavishes his grace and goodness upon me, and then I'm literally walking out receiving it. And I'm like, but I wanted a pumpkin. And then I throw a spiritual tantrum in the car with him. About why, why aren't you giving me what I want? Why, no, not just that. Why aren't you giving me what I need? I'm ignoring all that he's provided. Chief amongst that is himself. And he's inviting me, man, Ryan, I, 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 I want you to see that your sufficiency and your contentment, it's got to be in me and me alone. Not in Batman bounce houses and not in pumpkins. It's got to be in me and me alone. And so you don't understand that yet. And I struggle with that. But why can't I be content? And so it's learned. And here's what we practice as followers of Jesus. We have disciplines, right? Nobody likes that word. So we try and find millennial ways to describe it. But it's, it's discipline, right? We have to train ourselves to become something that we're not previously. I'm not by nature, or I'm not by my nature, a content person, and neither of you. So I have to train myself to the disciplines to become content and find my contentment solely in Jesus. And so some of the things that we do are the discipline of prayer. Now, when I pray thankfulness, I'm focusing on the presence of Christ. I'm focusing on my sufficiency in Him. And then I'm, I'm free to look around and be like, wow, Lord, you have blessed me with tons of Batman bounce houses. And I'm grateful for those, but more importantly, I'm grateful that I have you. And so when I can fix, when I can kind of step out of my spiritual tantrum, I can all of a sudden realize I am just so grateful that I have him. And my sufficiency, whether I have a little or whether I have a lot, it can actually be found in Jesus, not in what Jesus brings me. There's a big difference between loving Jesus and loving what Jesus provides me, right? And sometimes we convince ourselves that because we're loving what he brings us, that we actually love him. And then we find out when he removes what he's brought us, I don't love him as much as I thought I did. I loved what he brought me. And so that's the, one of the disciplines. The other disciplines is, is fasting, right? Here's one that nobody in America likes, fasting. Fasting is not just what you eat, but it's about fasting from something to focus on something else. And so what fasting does is it breaks you of a belief that you need something, right? So you think about food. It may not look like it, but this boy loves food, okay? My parents were extremely grateful when I moved out in college because their grocery bill like got cut in half when I moved out. I eat my pound in weight every week. And I love food. And so Fasting from that is difficult for me because my stomach is like a clock. And maybe yours is too. I don't know how my stomach can read a clock, but it can. And every day at 11.30, it will start to scream out to me. I'm dying. <laughs> Do something about this. I'm, I think I might die if, if at 11.30, we don't, we don't get a little Right? And so fasting tells me I don't need to eat. My stomach is screaming at me, we need to eat. And fasting says, no, 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 I'm going to 
teach and train myself that I don't need what I think I need. And that's not just with food, but that's with everything. I can go without what I think I need, and I will actually be okay. And then that teaches me, if I can go without that and still be okay, what else can I go without and still be okay? And then all of a sudden, as I fast from those things, I come to realize that my only true need is Jesus. And so fasting is a tool to break me of the belief that I need what I think I do. Because my stomach will tell me every day it needs to eat. My soul will tell me every day that it needs validation from other people. My heart will tell me that I need to be productive. To find my value and my worth. And all of these messages, until I fast from it and say, wait a minute, I actually don't need that. I can be content without it. And all of a sudden that begins to train my heart that if I don't need that, I don't need that, I don't need that. Wait a minute. I can be content in him. Because these wants have been disguised as needs for far too long. Let's look at verse 12 as we continue our way through. And he says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. You and I are going to walk through every season of life. You're going to have seasons where you're experiencing the greatest needs you've ever experienced. And you're going to have seasons where you experience abundance like you never have before. You're going to go through all of those. That's part of being human. That's part of living in this world. And yet the question is, is my discipleship to Jesus contingent on that season? Is my knowing and growing in Jesus dependent on my season? Because scripture is clear. You're going to have highs and you're going to have lows. Right? You're going to have uh, cup of noodle seasons. And you're going to have feasting seasons. Is your knowing and growing in Jesus dependent on what kind of season you're in? Because when we're content in him, then I can know him and grow in him regardless of whether I'm in a cup of noodle season or in a feasting season. But do I have that kind of contentment? And he says this, for I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. So go back to the Stoic philosophy. The Stoics believed, remember, that, that they could find it in themselves. And like there's like some Rubik's cube of virtue or experience that you can unlock. And all of a sudden, ta-da, it's going to open up and you're going to find sufficiency. And so one of the hot words for Stoics at that time was like mystery and secrecy. Because they thought it's just like, if I can just figure out the secret, then I will know it. And so Paul's no dummy. He uses this word intentionally as he writes this. And you can almost hear him leaning in and whispering, right? Stoics are, are apparently like preschoolers, right? If you could be the coolest person in a room full of preschoolers, here's your one tip. Walk into the room and say, do you want to know a secret? And every preschooler will come over to you. Why? I want to know a secret. It works. It works for some adults too, by the way. Right? But Stokes are like preschoolers. All you have to do is say the word secret. And they're like, oh, I want to know a secret. Do you know the secret to how I can be sufficient? And so Paul writes this word. I have learned the secret. And you can almost see him kind of leaning in. Hey, I've learned the secret. And then everybody's ears kind of dial in. What's the secret? And then he says it in verse 13. I can do all this 
through him who gives me strength. That's not the secret. Now the secret's in me. Not that guy, Jesus. And Paul just leans in and, hey, I've learned the secret. You're looking in the wrong well. There ain't no water in that well. You keep looking in you to find the secret of being content. And you're a broken, messed up person who lives by the American gospel of more is never enough. And that well ain't ever going to bring you water. And then Jesus says, I'm the one. And you come to me and you will find contentment because I can give you the ability to do these things. And so we look at verse 13. And until Jesus actually becomes enough for me, I will continue to get rocked in my cup of noodle seasons and I will continue to become apathetic in my faith in the abundant seasons. Because I'm not actually content in him. I'm either distracted by what I don't have or I'm distracted by what I do have. And I can never be content. No matter what my season. And so the last verse we look at is verse 13. And this verse is a beautiful verse that the church has done a beautiful job of absolutely destroying. And this verse is a wonderful example of what happens when you take bumper sticker theology and try and sail by it. Bumper sticker theology is this. I like the way that verse sounds. I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to slap it on everything. And it's going to make sense of it all. I can do all things through Christ who who strengthens me. As if Jesus really cares if I hit a PR on my squats. Is that really one of his concerns? No. And what we do is we take bumper sticker theology, we rip it out of its context. And then we find it to be quite powerless and meaningless. Because Paul is not trying to convince you, American Christian, that by Jesus' presence in your life, you can accomplish any goal. What? Sorry. That's not what he's talking about here. Now, he is saying that Jesus is your strength, but the strength is not for you to accomplish all your hopes and dreams. The strength, when you remember it in its context, is this. Jesus can give you the strength to be content in any season. That's what this is about. It's not about you hitting all your goals and that Jesus is like spiritual Gatorade that pushes you to the next level. That's not what this is. And when you take that, that trash theology, that Jesus somehow becomes self-help to you. And all of a sudden he becomes what he becomes how I unlock Joel Osteen's secret that every day is a Friday. Because Jesus gives me strength to do whatever I want. And you see the difference between those two gospels? I can do these things. I can be content no matter what I have through Jesus who strengthens me. Compared to I can accomplish all my hopes and dreams because Jesus is my fuel. Do you ever read the New Testament and get the inclination that Jesus' highest priority is that you have all your hopes and dreams fulfilled? As if he died for home ownership and a healthy wrath. And yet, that's what happens when we take bumper sticker theology 
And so here's my prayer, and we're going to go into a time of open worship in just a second here. Here's my prayer, is that no matter what season you're in, some of you are about to enter seasons of abundance. And man, I rejoice alongside you. And some of you are about to enter into seasons of scarcity and need and hurt and loneliness like you've never experienced before. And my prayer for you, whether either of those situations is true, is that you're able to say the reality of verse 13. I can, I can find contentment in this because I found my contentment in Jesus. Not in what I have or what I don't have. My prayer is that we would be a community of people who find contentment in him. That we experience the good life. The good life of contentment in Jesus.